Well, good morning, friends. It's good to be here with you all this morning. If you have your Bible, I encourage you to go to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, and today we'll be reading verses 16 through 26. Uh, if you do not know, I'm Byron Bradshaw, the pastor, and I'm also an elder here at Calvary. But it's good to be here and to worship as one of you this morning, just to receive the word of God and to worship. Thank you. Galatians chapter 5. Beginning at verse 16, we'll be going through verse 26. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another. So you may not do the things that you please. But if you are being led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousies, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, and factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and these like things, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. All right. Well, good morning, church. Hope everybody's had a good week so far. I hope that you're prepared to worship today. Worship isn't just coming out and singing songs. It's preparing your heart. It's receiving the things that God has for you in His Word and then responding to them. And uh, i got to say, already, the Word has been proclaimed through the message of the songs. So they've hit it right on point, exactly the things that we're going to talk about today. But before we get into that, um, speaking of music, speaking of songs, spiritual songs and hymns, uh, do you guys know what an occupational hymn is? You all ever heard that before? Good. Nobody rose their hand because I think I made that up. All right. So here's, here's what an occupational hymn is. So I'm going to give you a few examples. And I'm going to get you guys to participate a little bit. So I'm just I, let me set the, the scene here, and then we'll see where you can take it. If you're a baker, occupational hymn, you might enjoy such hymns as I Need Thee Every Hour. Get it? Okay. If you're a medical technician, you might like to sing Revive Us Again. If you're a dentist, maybe you like crown him with many crowns. All right, now this is where you get your shot. So, if you're a politician, what hymn might you like? Standing on the promises? That's what I come up with. All right, if you're a shopaholic, in the sweet by and by. All right, this is the last one. What's the occupational hymn that is best suited for a tailor? We're we're right here at it. I mean, it's it's in the message this morning. Holy, holy, holy. Okay. All right. So that gets us to our subject matter this morning. So last week, uh, we began a short study that we're going to conclude today that focuses... 
on the greatest threat to the abundant life that God wants us to have, the greatest threat to our practical day-to-day holiness in that sin. So, if you've been a believer for any length of time, uh, you understand that the work that the Lord Jesus Christ accomplished for us with His life, death, and resurrection has a threefold application. So, He has rescued us, not just from the penalty of sin, but also from the power of sin. And one day, we will see a rescuing from the very presence of sin. Right now, as it stands, that penalty that hung over your head for so long is completely gone. In the present, right now, you still wrestle with sin, though, don't you? Even though he has accomplished power over sin for us, we still wrestle with that a little bit. And so, this is the subject that we began to look at last week. Um, And it's, uh, uh, again, we're positionally holy, but we're slowly working that thing out in practice. And the scripture calls this process sanctification. So, it's the exercise of becoming more and more like Jesus, more and more like the God that we serve, who is holy, holy, holy. And this is a subject that God takes very seriously, our holiness. It is a subject that has been taken seriously by the church in the past. I was talking just after church last week about the Puritans uh, to somebody. I can't remember who it was now. But the Puritans had a, a good attitude and a good view of sin and holiness, something that I think that the church has lost to some degree today. God's position on it has not changed. His mindset about sin has not changed. His attitude toward what he expects from us has not changed. But we have allowed the culture to influence us to such a degree that our attitude toward sin, toward holiness, has changed. So let me just remind you what God has said in his word. Hebrews twelve fourteen. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. Some of the translations there say holiness in place of sanctification. And again, the reason for that is is because sanctification is the process of becoming holy. So it is the same thing. So uh, again, uh, 1 Peter 1, 14 through 16 This is what Peter says in regard to God's view of our holiness. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lust which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all of your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. What is God saying? I want you holy. I expect for you to be holy. There is a responsibility on your part to exercise Holiness in your life. Let me give you one more. 2 Corinthians 7, one. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Now, this is one of the great paradoxes of Scripture. So, it is God's work in us. I'm going to give you the full message right here, right now. It is God's work in us. 
to perfect us, to make us like his son. But it is also our responsibility. You say, explain that, Brother Bobby. I can't. (laughs) God's doing the work. It's all of him, but it's also our responsibility. So, bearing all that in mind, last week we looked at this great threat to our practical day-to-day holiness, this threat of sin which originates in our flesh. James tells us that lust, which is in the flesh, when it conceives, it gives birth to sin, and then when sin is brought about to its fruition, it brings forth death. Pastor Murray spent a month talking to us about the abundant life that God wants us to have. And the scripture is very plain. And that one thing can hinder that. One thing can affect our peace, our joy, and all of those good things that God has for us. And that is the tolerance of sin in our life. We have to have the right perspective of sin. And so last week we looked at Romans chapter 8 and also some of 7, kind of gave you a little bit of an overview there. And I, I proposed three thoughts that are, I think are helpful for us to remember as we engage in this daily battle with sin. Number one, remember your obligation. And if you remember, that Romans passage teaches us that we're not condemned. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that's the key. We used to be bound to the flesh. We were bound to the law. We were under the law. We were under the penalty of the law. And Christ came. He set us free from that. How did he do that? By placing us on the cross with him. The flesh has been crucified with him. We have died with him. And now we rise and we live with him. And Romans 7 begins with this introduction uh, to a principle that a wife is bound to her husband by the law as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, then she is free to pursue another husband. That's what's happened for us. Right? We've, we've been taken out, we've been eliminated, and because of that, we're free to pursue, not only free to do it, but obligated to pursue our new husband, the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're not bound like we used to. So we have to remember that we're obligated to him now. We also need to recognize that there are horrific consequences for sin, and we covered this in some detail last week, spent the majority of our time looking at the horrific consequences of sin, the unforeseen horrific consequences. You can never account for all of the many ways that your choices, your fleshly, worldly, lustful choices will impact you, your family, your church, your community, the world. You can't account for it. Trust me. So there are unforeseen horrific consequences. We need to remember that. That's helpful when we engage in the battle. And then we also need to remember that we have to treat sin with a ruthless mentality. So I carried you back to the Old Testament to give you a picture of exactly what that ruthless mentality looks like. If you remember, we went to... 
First um, Samuel chapter 15, and we looked at a man named Agag, who was the king of the Amalekites. And if you remember, we discussed what the Amalekites represent. And I'll touch on that again here in just a minute, all of that. But uh, Agag had been um, a thorn of some sort in the side of Israel for some time. And uh, God had commanded Saul to eradicate not just Agag, but all of the Amalekites. And Saul did not completely obey. And if you remember, we said that partial obedience is not obedience at all. So when Samuel shows up on the scene and Saul walks out, he says, I've done everything that the Lord's commanded me to do. Then Samuel says, well, what then is the bleeding of the sheep that I hear? If you've completely eradicated and fulfilled the word of the Lord, which told you to eliminate all of the people, men, women, boys, girls, infants, and all of the animals, then how come I hear this in the background? How come Agag's tucked away in a closet? Right? And so then Samuel takes it upon himself to fulfill the Lord's command. He draws out a sword and he hacks Agag to pieces. It is a gruesome scene. A human being hacked to pieces. This is the mentality that we're supposed to treat sin with. Ruthlessly. So that's kind of where we ended last week. And I promised you this week that I would bring you some practical things that would help you do that today. We're not going to draw out a sword, a physical sword, and hack up a human being today. Please don't do that. It looked bad on the church. But what we can do, I can give you hopefully some practical things that will enable you to do that spiritually. And I also told you last week that these things are going to be simple. They're going to be fundamental. They're going to be elementary. And they're going to be things that you already know. You just need to be reminded of them. And that's just the nature of human beings. But I promise you, if you receive them this morning, they will help you. Now, one other thing I need to say before we actually get into it. So I have labored trying to figure out exactly... What else needs to be said this morning? There is enough here to compose an entire course on this subject. We could spend 12 weeks on this, and I still don't feel like we would scratch the surface of all of the practical things that you could do. But I think we'll touch on one or two this morning that will really be helpful for you. So, again, let's start uh, with the overarching idea And it comes directly from the passage this morning. The big idea is walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you again for your living, holy, inerrant, powerful, far-reaching, fruit-producing word. Send it to our hearts and cause it to bring you glory as we react to it in obedience this morning. Help us to do that so that we can be what we're supposed to be before you, so we can glorify you and our thoughts and what we look at and what we feel and what we say and how we interact with each other, how we love the world. Lord, help us. So in receiving this and obeying it and living it out, 
we can experience the abundant life you want us to have. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so looking again at verse 16, it says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. And then again in verse 25, Paul says, If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. I'm telling you, the sum total of everything that we need to know to live the victorious Christian life, to have the abundant life that we all desire, that God wants us to have, is found right here in this passage. Everything that we need to know. We can have all that the Lord Jesus Christ promises. We can have those experiences that you see occasionally in other brothers and sisters. We can have it by following, obeying this very simple, very basic, very fundamental commandment, walk by the Spirit. So what does it mean? What does it mean to walk by the Spirit? That's the commandment, but we have to understand exactly what it is that Paul means when he tells us to walk by the Spirit. If we don't understand it, then we can't make traction with it. We can't make practical applications. So, the question is, what does Paul mean? I look to Ephesians to find some of these answers. Uh, Paul mentions uh, this concept of walking repeatedly. Uh, throughout his letters, but there's a huge emphasis of this in Ephesians. In Ephesians 4.1, Paul implores us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. In 4.17, he instructs us not to walk any longer as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. In 5.1, he tells us to be imitators of God and walk in love. In 5.8, after he gives us a long, stern Warning, which, by the way, when you leave here today, at some point in time this week, I would read over chapter 4 and chapter 5 of Ephesians, uh, just to give you a little extra something. But after this stern warning in chapter 5, uh, he, he, he tells us that, uh, reminds us really that we need to walk as children of light. And then in 5, 15 through 16, uh, he alerts us that we need to walk as wise men do as opposed to the unwise. And he says, making the most of your time because the days are evil. So there's a lot of conversation just in that one book about how we ought to walk. And what he's really referring to, this is how you are supposed to live out your life. This is how your day-to-day conduct is supposed to be lived out. You're supposed to have these mentalities. You're supposed to have these attitudes. You're supposed to exercise these behaviors in your life. And so he helps us by kind of summarizing for us the overarching idea of what it means to walk it out. He does that in uh, verses 17 through 21. So if you'll just turn over there to Ephesians chapter 5, I want to read that passage and actually put it before you. Chapter 5, verses 17 through 21 says, So then, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, But be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. 
In that passage, Paul has summarized what it means to walk by the Spirit, what he intends for us to receive when he says walk by the Spirit. Paul illustrates for us the outworkings of a man that is filled by the Spirit of God, and he contrasts that to what a person probably understands the outworkings are of a person that is filled with liquor. How many of you could raise your hand and say, I've been around a person that's drunk before? All right. And how many of you, and that, those observations, have said, wow, I knew that person, uh, but when they got drunk, they're a completely different person. You know, you see that, right? We understand that. Uh, alcohol it has an impact on us. It takes over. It has an influence over our bodies. And it causes us to think and to feel and to say and to do things that maybe we normally wouldn't do. When we are consumed by it, when it consumes us, there is evidence. There's an outworking of that in our life. And most of the time it's not a pleasant one, right? Well, Paul says there is a certain kind of outworking that happens in a person that is filled with the Spirit of God. When a person is consumed by the Spirit of God. When a person is influenced totally by the Spirit of God. And he uses some very specific terms, ideas, concepts, attitudes, behaviors, actions that are typical of a person that is consumed, filled, influenced by the Spirit of God. Again, we speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We sing. We make melody in our hearts to the Lord. We're always thankful. And we're subject to one another. And encapsulated in those things, there's a myriad of of disciplines and attitudes that you can draw out of that. Humility, a bunch of stuff, right? So there's certain outworkings that are evidenced in a person that is filled with the Spirit of God. To walk by the Spirit means to allow Him to exert His influence over you. It is the opposite of grieving Him. It is the opposite of resisting him. Ephesians 4.30 says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. We've been sealed by the Spirit of God. And I want to get very elementary with you. Because it's necessary. When were we sealed by the Spirit of God? Well, Ephesians 1.13 says, In Him you also, after listening to the message of truth, hang on to that. Okay, jot this down. If you have a little notepad, jot this verse down. Jot down exactly what's being said. He said, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. Okay, I know it's elementary, but the reality is, is that you cannot be led by the Spirit of God, if you do not possess the Spirit of God. You have to have been saved by the Lord Jesus Christ and sealed by His Spirit to have victory over the flesh. 
I think that's important to mention because a lot of us are here today. I know a lot of you are eager to get some practical helps to live more victoriously. If you're a real believer, this is your heartbeat. You want to be pleasing to the one who has saved you, to the one who's made you and bought you with his blood. You want to be holy. Some of you just want to stop hurting. You see the consequences, the outworking of the flesh in your life, and you understand that there are negative consequences, and you're just sick of the negative consequences. Your heartbeat isn't necessarily to be holy. Some of you here today may not even be Christians. That's just the reality. You have to have the right DNA. None of the things that I'm going to say to you this morning are going to be helpful if you do not have the right DNA to begin with. Uh, when I was a teenager, uh, I, I thought I wanted to be a bodybuilder. Y'all are looking, you're like, but no. <laughs> well, I sought out the best bodybuilder, which happened to be Arnold Schwarzenegger. He had a book about yay thick that detailed everything you needed to do to find the success that he found. I mean, it had eating plans. It told you when to eat. It told you how much to eat. It told you when to rest. It told you what exercises to do, how many of those exercises to do. I mean, it it was just littered with just incredible detail of his life and everything that he did to achieve the goal that he achieved. At the beginning of the book, the very beginning of the book, he said, none of this will mean anything to you if you don't have the right DNA. You can do all of these things. You can eat all the right food, exercise, do all of the regiment things that I list here. But the truth is, I was gifted with a certain DNA that just allowed me to grow to this point. If you don't have the right DNA, it doesn't matter what we say, what you hear this morning, it won't help you. It starts with having the Spirit of God in your heart. Now, speaking of DNA, I kind of want to go back to what we talked about last week, the Amalekites, for just a little bit. Remember, I told you that they were a picture of the flesh. The New Testament tells us that the things that happened to the Old Testament saints, they were for our good. They're supposed to be a picture, an illustration, an example for us. So it is healthy for us to go to the Old Testament and see what it is that God wants us to see and understand the New Testament concepts a little bit better. And so we see in the Old Testament that the Amalekites were a picture of the flesh. We understand that the Israelites, they're a picture of the church. Egypt was a picture of the world. Pharaoh was a picture of the devil. The Passover lamb is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. There are pictures that abound in the Old Testament in those stories. Canaan is a picture of the abundant life, not of heaven. You've probably heard that in songs, but it's not a picture of heaven. It's a picture of the abundant life that God wants us to have here on earth. Amalek, Agag, these people were a picture of the flesh, the sinful flesh, the thing that opposed the children of Israel and almost kept them out of the promised land. 
Well, if you remember, I told you that Amalek was a descendant of Esau. It was Esau's grandson. If you know your Bible stories, Esau was the twin brother of Jacob, Jacob and Esau. What you also remember about Esau, that he was an incredibly profane man. He was a worldly man, a fleshly man, a lustful man, a man that exchanged his future for pottage, his spiritual future for pottage. He had no concept of eternal things. He had no mindset for the eternal things. His, his mind was focused and driven by the needs of his flesh. That story bothered me for so long. And I kept praying about it and kept praying about it because I really didn't understand what all was being meant by that. But that's the idea there. He's so driven by the flesh, by the needs of the moment, that he was willing to exchange spiritual things, priceless things, for momentary fleshly things that only satisfied in the moment. So he's a picture of the flesh. He's a type. He was much more interested in the present than he was the future. He was more interested in his body than his soul. So I want to remind you, I'm going to go to a different passage this week, just to remind you of how God thought about this man in light of that and how he thought about this man's lineage in light of that. So Malachi 1 through 4 says this, The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi, I have loved you, says the Lord, But you say, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. Have you ever heard that in Scripture, read that in Scripture, and just kind of scratched your head about that? You've heard expositors explain that away. Um, This is what it means. Uh, So listen carefully. The things that we talked about last week, the things we talked about this week, this is what it means when God says, I loved Jacob, but I hated Esau. And I have made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. Though Edom says we have been beaten down, but we will return and build up the ruins. Thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will tear down. I will tear down. And men will call them the wicked territory and the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. God says, write it down in a book. There will never, ever be peace between me and the people of Edom. Esau And all of his kinfolk, there will be enmity between us forever. You understand that Jacob and Esau, though they're twins, they don't have the same DNA physically. We know that, right? They didn't have the same DNA spiritually either. Again, Esau was completely focused on the flesh. Jacob was focused on the spiritual things. He was focused on God. He had placed his heart 
where it needed to be, where he was commanded to place it. They didn't have the same DNA spiritually. So it all starts with the right DNA. You can't walk by the Spirit if God does not reside in you. Church, you need to understand something. It is not enough to admire Jesus. It's not enough to applaud Him. It's not enough to be inspired by His morals, His teachings. It's not enough to come to church and hang out with His people. It is not enough to throw money in the offering plate. It's not enough to teach a class. It's not enough. That is not what Jesus has required of us. What He has required of us is a heartfelt obedience. Faith, trust in Him. Not an outward expression of rules. There is a difference. We have to wrestle with that. We have to grapple with that until we have a handle on that. Because there is a difference between the two. The Pharisees practice an outward expression of rules. But inwardly, what did Jesus say about them? They were like dead men's tombs. Right? There was no life in them whatsoever at all. He, he isn't saying that there shouldn't be an outward manifestation of the things that he has told us to do. The Pharisees were practicing, sometimes, the things that God had prescribed for them to do. But it wasn't generated from the heart. It wasn't an expression of the heart. It was an expression of the flesh. And that's not enough. We can't just applaud them, show up, agree, sing the songs, get emotional. It's not enough. In fact, Jesus says in Matthew 7, 21-23, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. You people who practice Iniquity. Practitioners of iniquity. God understands our flesh. He knows us. He knew us before the foundation of the world. He formed us in our mother's womb. And Connie and I were talking this morning. God knows that you are a long-term project. Get that. He knows that. He knows that there are going to be days where you lose the battle. Where sin wins in your life. But as a real believer, you're going to hate that day. You're going to long for the other days. An unbeliever doesn't care. There isn't a battle that's raging inside of them. 
that desires to be holy, that desires to see more good days than bad days. Practitioners of evil. We cannot be practitioners of evil and expect that the Lord's going to open the gates of heaven and usher us right in. He has warned us too many times in His Word that that is not going to happen. John says in 1 John 3, 7, Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous. Church, I'm telling you, we're flesh. Everything about our flesh is evil. Our minds are evil. Our heart is evil. It is so easy for us if we are not constantly filtering the Word of God, the truth of God through our minds and through our hearts. It is so easy for us to be deceived. To deceive ourselves. To make ourselves think that we are something else in front of Christ other than what we actually are. The scripture is replete with commands to us not to be deceived. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And this isn't a complete list. And he, he mixes up the list in different places. Sin is sin. That's the overarching idea. And if you're a practitioner of sin, do not kid yourself. You have no hope. There is not a shot that you'll get into the gates of heaven. That's what Jesus is saying. Don't kid yourself. If you're practicing sin daily in your life, here you're a hypocrite, but at home you're a completely different person and you know it. Don't expect for the Lord Jesus Christ to open up those gates and usher you in. It's not going to happen. You need to be warned. And that's why all these warnings are in Scripture. So we won't be deceived. We won't fool ourselves into believing. You cannot practice sin. Practice sin. Love sin. Entertain sin. Coddle swim. Take a gag and put him in the closet as a trophy and hold him there. You cannot do it. You have to treat him ruthlessly. You have to kill him. You have to eliminate him from your life. That's what we've been commanded to do. John goes on to say in verse 11 of that passage, or Paul rather, Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. Some of us, that was our lifestyle. We remember that lifestyle and we recognize that there is a change that has happened. Something has taken place to radically change us. But what this passage indicates that agrees with the rest of Scripture, now as a new believer, we have a capacity and ability to choose the right thing, to do the right thing. But we also have the capacity and the freedom to still choose the wrong thing. And that influence 
is still in our life and we will not escape the influence, the sinful influence of the flesh until we give this flesh up. It will always be here. So, Paul indicates here to the Corinthians, some of you are like that. And by the way, all of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, is a whole, whole letters of rebuke to them because of the things they're practicing in their life. He says, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified. So stop doing it. Stop behaving that way. Don't do it anymore. That was your old life, but you have a choice now. You don't have to operate in the flesh. You can operate in the spirit now. So how do we do it? Well, to walk by the spirit, we need the right information. So let me take you to a parallel passage from Ephesians to Colossians. So just turn over there to Colossians for just a minute. Chapter 3. So in the Ephesians passage, Paul uh, outlines the outworkings of a man that is controlled by the Spirit of God. And here in this Colossians passage, he outlines the outworkings of a man that is filled, controlled by another resource, if you will. So chapter 3, verses 16 through 17 says, Let the word of Christ Richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to Him, thanks through Him to God the Father. So you see a very similar, almost exact replication of the outworking of a man filled by the Spirit of God and the man who has the word of Christ richly dwelling within him. I told you, I'm not going to tell you anything new. It's fundamental stuff. It's all elementary. We know this. Trust and obey. To trust and obey, you have to know what it says. That's what it's all about. You can't do what you're supposed to do. You can't be fueled with the knowledge that you need to make the right decision if you're not in the word of God. If the Word of God, the words of Christ are not richly, and there's a key there, richly dwelling within you. You need the right information. So in practical terms, what this means for us, our sanctification, our day-to-day holiness and victory over sin starts with what we know and believe about the salvation that has been Procured for us and about the Savior who procured it. This is why Paul spends so much time on doctrine before he ever pivots toward behavior. He always, in all of his letters, he emphasizes doctrine, truth, knowledge, the things that you need to know that enable you. To behave and to be and to do what you're supposed to be and do. Your ethical behavior is a direct reflection of your dogma. Your duties will always flow out of your doctrine. 
And it's what you know and what you believe that designs and determines your behavior. Always. You can say what you believe. You can profess something and live out something else. But it's always what's in here that's going to work its way out here. That's a fact. You cannot hide it. You just can't. John MacArthur says, The flesh is in, that is in you is wretched. It spurts forth between the cracks of your supposed righteousness. It spurts forth in anger, bitter words, unkind thoughts, criticism, self-conceit, lack of understanding, impatience, weak prayers, indifferent worship, and public and private acts of sin. You can't contain it. You can't hide it. You have to kill it. Else it will continue to manifest these evidences in your life. So you have to do something with it. Titus 2, 11 and 12 says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. So, instruction came that told us how we were supposed to live. In Romans ten seventeen, so faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. What did Colossians 3 tell us? It tells us again, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. We hear the words of Christ proclaimed. We see it on the pages of God's holy word and it inspires faith that leads to salvation. We're told for us to walk by the Spirit, we need to allow the words of Christ to richly dwell within us. This is exactly the argument that Paul is making to the Galatians. They've been deceived by outsiders, by liars, into believing that if they perform certain actions, then they will be closer to God. They will be more holy, more like God, more of what God expects for them to be. But Paul tells them early in the, in the book, in chapter 3, who's bewitched you? Who's deceived you into believing this? Were, was it all of those things that ushered you into the faith to begin with? No. It was faith. It was the words of Christ that you heard and that you believed in. So now are you going to be made perfect by all of those external Fleshly manifestations? No. The flesh is evil. The only thing that will get you down the road to holiness. The only steps that you can take that God expects you to take. That enable the conformity to the Lord Jesus Christ's image. Are the steps that happen within. The things that God does inside of you. We need to... Walk by the Spirit, filling our heart, filling our mind, filling our time with God's Word. But not just looking at it, reading it. We need to be meditating on it. We need to be memorizing it so that we can meditate on it. We need to be exchanging and bantering that truth back and forth with God, confessing our sin, inviting Him in to change us. 
there needs to be an outworking that stems from the heart that's a direct result of what the Word of Christ is doing in our minds and in our hearts. Romans 12, 1 and 2 speaks to this. And again, this is another one of those great passages where Paul spends 11 chapters emphasizing doctrine. Then he gets to chapter 12 and verse 1 and 2. He makes a pivot. He says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, and because of all of the things that I have just taught you in the past 11 chapters, I urge you by the mercies of God to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. You know, the problem with a living sacrifice is it keeps wanting to crawl off of the altar. You have to keep dragging that thing back and putting it back on the altar. But we're exhorted to do that very thing. Keep presenting yourself to Him. Present your, your members as instruments of righteousness. Keep bringing it back to Him. He knows it's going to drag itself off. It's going to try and wander away. It's going to try and rise up and, and take dominion back. He says, subdue it. Bring it back. Keep bringing it back. Present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. The church looks too much like the world. Evaluate your own life. Can a stranger walk up to you and say, there's something different about you than everybody else I see? We look too much like the world. And we're not bringing our minds to the throne of God and allowing the words of Christ to permeate us and richly dwell in us so that our minds can be transformed. I'm telling you, your mind is part of your flesh, and it's just as evil as the rest of your flesh. And if you don't continually bring it before Him and allow Him to renew it, to transform it daily, often, throughout the day, the flesh is going to rise up. It's going to come back stronger. You have periods in between, but just like a Malik, they would knock them down for a while. They would rise up again. They put them down at Rephidim. They came back. They weren't utterly destroyed. Saul was supposed to deal with them, but he didn't. They came back. They stole David's wives, his men's wives. David chased after them. He put some of them down, but they came back. They showed up in the book of Esther and threatened to eliminate the entire Jewish people, a man named Haman. Who was an Amalekite, a direct descendant of Agag. It's going to keep showing up. But God said in Malachi, they may rebuild, but I'll tear them down. And that's also what we see at the Battle of Rephidim. And I'm just going to close right there, and I know I'm a little over time, and I apologize. But the Battle of Rephidim, if you remember, where Israel had their first encounter, their first real battle. It was with the Amalekites because of what they had done to the children of Israel in plundering the weak and the sick and the old who were struggling and straggling behind the rest of Israel as they escaped in the Exodus. 
God hated them for that. And so from that day forward, he said, they're going to be eliminated from off the face of the earth. You write it down, Moses. You make sure Joshua remembers. You write it down. You make it part of the Mosaic law. But at the Battle of Rephidim, what happened was Moses went up the mountain. He told Joshua to pick men to fight. They had never been at war before. Nobody knew how to fight. I don't even know that they had weapons to fight. They'd never been engaged before. And so Moses goes up the mountain and he says, as long as I'm holding up my hands, the battle's going to prevail. But when my hands drop, it's, it's not. And that's what we see. We see a battle happening down in the valley. But there's another battle up on the mountaintop. The battle in the valley was dictated by what happened on the mountaintop. It wasn't dictated by what was happening in the valley. We get it backwards. The battle isn't determined by the things that we're doing here in the moments of the encounter. The battle is being dictated by the time that we spend on the mountaintop. Just a few things I want to give you in one minute. Moses, when he held his hands up, they prevailed. When he dropped his hands, they failed. So Aaron and Hur came alongside Moses to help him, to hold his hands up. Right? They gave him a stone to sit on. What was Moses holding in his hand? These are just the two things I want to mention to you that might be helpful to you. In his hand was the rod of God. It was the rod that God was using, that he had used from the time they were in Egypt all the way through to demonstrate evidence that it's really his power. It's him. This is a stick. It's really me. I'm the one doing this. It's not Moses. It's not the stick. A stick can't do these things. A stick can't swallow snakes. A stick can't split the sea. A stick can't make water come out of a rock. A stick cannot dictate the victory or the defeat of an entire army. It's me. I'm the one. But for the victory to happen, it took two things. It took the power of God to be held up. And it took people to support Moses. They were all weak. I had a good mind to have all of you raise your hand at the beginning of the sermon and just see how long you could hold it up through the sermon. (laughs) Just so everybody could see that everybody's weak. You can't do it. We don't want other people to see that we can't hold our hands up. But you have to share life with people. I'm so thankful for my church. I'm so thankful I have people to share life with. I can't do it by myself. I'm going to fall. I'm going to fail. You're going to see me broken. You're going to see me sin. What are you going to do? Are you going to cast me out? Or are you going to hold my hands up? We have to hold each other's hands up. We are all sinners. We are all going to sin. All right? Horribly. We need to hold each other's hands up. We need to look to the power of God. It's fundamental. But that's all I got. And pray for us. Father, we thank you. Thank you so much for your word and for your truth. Help us to be what we need to be for each other. And may you get all of the glory for whatever victories we see in our life. Because it's all because of you. In Jesus' name, amen.